Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, page 1134. Page 1134 will take you to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 33 as we finish out this chapter together. Romans 9, 30 to 33. The topic before us this morning in this section of chapter 9 is divine election and human responsibility. Divine election and human responsibility in particular with regard to the unbelief of the nation of Israel. How do these two important and complementary realities interface with each other? Many many want to place them in opposition to one another, but they are friends. And friends don't need to be reconciled. So Paul is going to be declaring these great doctrines for us this morning. You know, years ago I worked very closely with a Jewish man. And uh, on more than one occasion, I sought to try to share the gospel with him. And at times, he would express a level of curiosity in the things that I was talking about. But, but he always sort of kept things at a distance. There was always a, an arm's length between us. I never seemed to be able to get beyond some questions that he might ask. And, and I would answer those questions and begin to try to to talk about Messiah, but, but he always kind of held that, that discussion away from him, kept that, that safe space between he and the reality that I was talking about, which is that, that uh, Yeshua was Messiah. And I think in his case, the uh, words of the Apostle Paul were ringing true, words that he wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, just Listen to those there and be reminded. Second Corinthians three, fourteen and 15, Paul says, But their minds were hardened. For until this day, this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Paul says that the reading of the Mosaic Law to his countrymen doesn't penetrate their heart because there is a spiritual veil that lies over it. And I think that's what I was encountering with that man that I used to work with so many years ago. There just seemed to be a veil that I never could get beyond. You know, in the beginning, in the beginning, the church was predominantly Jewish in nature. Right? Born at Pentecost, the early converts, those first 3,000, and then as it began to spread out from there, were all Jewish. The church was exceedingly Jewish in origin. There were but a few Gentile converts. But by the time Paul writes this letter to the believers at Rome, just a a couple of decades after the birth of the church, by this time the church has become predominantly Gentile. There's been a role reversal that has happened and Paul wants to highlight that role reversal here for us this morning in this passage before us, Romans 9, verses 30 to 31. And he wants to show us that this role reversal that has occurred, that is that 
what started out with in Judaism and being received by the nation and now has become rejected and Gentiles who were once outside are now on the inside. This amazing role reversal he wants to show us is both a matter of divine sovereignty, but is also a result of human responsibility. It is divine sovereignty, but it is also human responsibility. The fact that the nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah, Paul says, the fault of which lies with them. So in the text before us this morning, verses 30 through 33, I want to look with you at three aspects of Israel's failure. Three aspects of Israel's failure so that we don't follow them down the wide path of destruction. So that we do not follow them down the wide path of destruction. Follow along as I read the text for you this morning. We're just going to begin at verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Three aspects of Israel's failure this morning. The first, and I've included these in your handout, the first aspect is the reality of Israel's failure. The very reality of Israel's failure. What shall we say then, verse 30, Paul says. This is a, this is a question that he, that he asks in summary of all that has gone on before. He has presented some amazing teaching here in the earlier part of chapter 30. And, and now he's summarizing it all. And he says, what do we say to this? What do we say to this reality that in verse 24, God is now calling to himself as vessels of mercy, those from among the Gentiles? What do we say to that? What do we say to the reality that back in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9, that that God is hardening the nation of Israel. What do we say to that? There's been an obvious role reversal here. What do we make of it? How do you explain it? Is Israel off the hook? Is Israel not accountable? Is there, is there unbelief strictly God's responsibility? God's fault? Is that what it is? Does Israel bear any blame at all for their unbelief? What shall we say? These few verses here are Paul's summary answer to that important question. Paul will answer in summary form in verses 30 through 33 this question. And then in chapter 10, he will begin to give a full and detailed treatment of that very answer. So just pulling back for a second and trying to keep this whole thing in its big context. Remember, the overriding question of all of this is why does Israel not believe? Why has Israel, to whom the promises of God were made, rejected the very one whom God sent to redeem them? Does that mean 
that God's promises have failed, that God is unable to keep His Word to His people? Paul's answer is no. Absolutely not. And he begins to answer it as I've told you over and over again here in chapter 9 in the earliest part of this chapter by speaking about the sovereignty of God. And he says that it is somehow in the election of God, the the predestination of God, the, the divine sovereignty of God that His people would reject Messiah at this time. And in chapter 10, he comes back and he says that it is the responsibility of the people themselves. That they can't slough it all off onto God. They can't say, well, I wasn't predestined to believe, so I'm not guilty, God. I wasn't one of your elect, therefore I'm not responsible. When I stand before the judgment seat, I've got an excuse. I've got, I've got a way out. I've got a back door. Paul says no. Chapter 10, no. Israel, you are responsible for your unbelief. All the signs were there. You should have believed, and yet you did not. Chapter 11, just to finish out his discussion, Paul speaks about the final recovery of God's chosen people. That indeed his promises have not failed and there will be a day when all Israel shall believe. Paul tells us in Romans 11 and verse 26. But here in these verses before us, we're going to enter into this discussion of the unbelief of Israel and their responsibility, their failure. Notice how Paul begins here. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. He's beginning to speak about Gentiles, but notice the lack of the definite article here. Notice he doesn't say that the Gentiles. He just says Gentiles. Paul is not talking about all people here. Without exception, he's talking about certain people, certain Gentiles. That is that there are there is a subset of the Gentiles who believe. Not all Gentiles generally, but but some those Gentiles who believed. Those were not pursuing righteousness, he says. By the way, this word righteousness is kind of a key to this whole section. Beginning in verse 30 of chapter 9 and running through the 10th verse of chapter 10, Paul uses the word righteousness 11 times. 11 times it appears in this short section. So over and over and over again, it is the righteousness that is the, at the core of Israel's problem. How does one become righteous? There were two different answers. And Israel is accountable because they got the wrong one. Now, Paul is not speaking here about moral righteousness. He's not speaking about making good moral choices. That's not his his point here. He is talking about righteousness in the sense of a legal standing before God. The righteousness that he established in chapters 1 through 4, a righteousness that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. How is a person acquitted? How does a person made right before the judge of the universe? How is one made righteous? Paul says that for the Gentiles, verse 30, they weren't even looking for that. It wasn't even on their radar screen. It was was nothing in which they concerned themselves. He's not saying that they had no interest in, in moral righteousness. What he's saying is that they were not seeking after a righteous status, a legal acquittal before the one true God. It wasn't even in their thinking Now, historically, this is true. 
This is true of the Greeks. The Greeks basically viewed sin as a simple error. And thus they felt no need to be justified. It was an error. It was a shortcoming. It was a, it was a failure, but it wasn't sin. It wasn't transgression. How like the Greeks we are today. That's our culture too. Our culture basically has the same fundamental misunderstanding. We, we have a popular expression here in America, don't we? We say that nobody is perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. That rolls off our tongue so easily. Nobody's perfect. We use it as an excuse. It's not an admission of our guilt. It's an excuse that we use for our disobedience, for our failures. Well, I mean, after all, nobody's perfect. But folks, if, if people, if it's only a mistake, if it's only a weakness, then the death of Christ makes no sense. It's incomprehensible that God would send His own Son to die on a cross. It would be an act of monstrous cruelty if, if it were merely a mistake, if it was merely a weakness. You see, it is not just a weakness. It is not just merely a, a foible of ours. We are guilty of great moral wrong. We are unrighteous by nature. That is, to stand before God whose, whose standard is perfection. Jesus said that you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To fall short in this way is to, is to be guilty. Is to be guilty. God cannot overlook guilt. Guilt must be atoned for. And that atonement comes through Jesus Christ. How much like these Gentiles we really are. These first century pagans. They weren't even concerned about how one becomes right before God. It wasn't part of their thinking at all. Yet look at verse 30. Paul says they weren't looking for it, yet nevertheless they received it. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. They weren't even looking to be made right before God. They didn't even think about being made right before God. And yet, they received that for which they were not looking. A righteousness from God in the only way possible. Look again at the verse. A righteousness which is by faith. By faith. They were like the man who was walking through the field and stumbled over a hidden treasure. Do you remember that? And for the joy of it all, he goes and he purchases the field that the treasure might be his. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. These are the Gentiles that Paul's talking about here. They stumbled over that for which they were not seeking. I can identify with this. I can identify with this. When I was in college, I was an atheistic pagan. For the most part, I was pleased with my own external standard of morality. I had my do's and don'ts, and at least from my biased point of view, I met my do's and avoided most of my don'ts. I had no idea about any kind of universal standard of righteousness. I was unconcerned about the state of my soul. I wasn't looking for God, but God came looking for me. 
God came looking for me and through the witness of the scriptures and some Christian believers, I was introduced to the love of Jesus Christ. And I also became terrifyingly aware of my own lack of righteousness before God. I came aware of the reality that God requires absolute perfection. That His standard is that you will be righteous as He is righteous. And I came to realize I didn't have it. And I also came to realize that through the Lord Jesus Christ, through believing on Him, that I could receive by faith the gift of that righteousness could be mine. That Christ would be my substitute. That before the bar of divine justice, I would be made right. I can identify with these Gentiles here. I wasn't looking for God, but God came looking for me. And I'm sure that's true of you as well. You know, Paul was the great missionary church planter among the Gentiles, wasn't he? He was sent out by the church in Antioch, Syria. He and his ministry partners... And wherever they went, they went to synagogue after synagogue and they received essentially the same treatment, the same rejection, the same often violent rejection. But when they preached to the Gentiles, they saw amazing results. I want you to be reminded of that. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Page 1105, if you're turning in a pew Bible. This is Paul's first missionary journey. He's here at Pisidian Antioch, it says, back in verse 14. And he preaches a rather lengthy sermon here, demonstrating that Jesus is the long-foreseen Messiah. He's preaching in a synagogue. Verse 42, and as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them, and were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life, believed. Verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 27, the end of that first journey. Paul and Barnabas go back to the church that had sent them out in Antioch, Syria. And they report, verse 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Back to Romans 9. This was Paul's ministry experience. Wherever he went, he he preached first to the people who should have received the news with gladness and joy. 
And yet he encountered nothing but opposition. But when he turned to those who had not been searching, had not been prepared, had not been looking, a window, a door of faith was opened to them and they flooded into the church. This is divine sovereignty. This is an illustration of divine sovereignty. This is the work of God. It's the only explanation possible. This is actually Paul's clinching illustration, by the way, of the reality he stated back in verse 16 of this chapter. Chapter 9, verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God extended mercy to the Gentiles. Gentiles who are not pursuing righteousness get it anyway through faith. And we have the case of Israel. Israel who is zealously pursuing righteousness and yet tragically falls short. Look at verse 31. But Israel. Contrast the nation. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Israel, possessor of the Old Testament, the oracles of God, Paul says. They have the temple. They have the sacrificial system. Righteousness was central to their religion. It was all about being righteous before God. Their lives were occupied. One writer describes it this way. They were occupied by Levitical prescriptions. Minutiae about Sabbaths and meats, fastings, ties, washings of hands, of bodies, of furniture, etc. Their whole religion was concerned with being made righteous before God. It was a detailed, laborious effort to be made right before God. Paul says, but Israel, verse 31, pursuing a law of righteousness, speaking here, a law of righteousness about the Mosaic law. You see that, by the way, when you get down to verses four and five of chapter 10, where he's unfolds the argument in a little more detail for you here and clearly makes it known to be the Mosaic law. They are pursuing this law, a law of righteousness. I think Paul calls it this, by the way, to to show its intent. To show its intent, to, to show what the law was originally designed to do. To show the nation how they could be righteous before God. Israel pursued this law. They pursued it with a vigor. They pursued it with a vengeance. They pursued it with incredible levels of obedience. Yet they failed to arrive They failed to arrive at its intended end. What a tragic statement. Verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. They were pursuing the shadow and they missed the reality. Why? Why? Verse 32, why? Because the purpose of the law was to show them that the way of righteousness was by faith. 
Second aspect, they reason for Israel's failure. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They were pursuing the law given by God to Moses on Sinai as if this, if they could just keep every single piece of it, if they could just do this, they would achieve the righteousness that they know they needed before God. They knew they were not righteous in and of themselves, but if they could just do all the things that God said for them to do, they would arrive at that righteousness. You know, to be have a right standing before God in this way would require perfection. You would have to keep the law of God absolutely perfect. Never, ever, ever violate it. Not just overtly, but inadvertently. You would have to keep it not just in the external deeds, but you would have to keep it internally in its, in its purpose. By the way, only one ever kept the law of God with such perfection. Only one ever kept it perfectly, externally and internally. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. But for all the rest of us, we fall Before James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever is guilty or whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he becomes guilty of all. That is one transgression, one shortcoming, one failure. You become a lawbreaker. You become a lawbreaker and it's all for naught. That's why Paul can say in chapter 3 of this book of Romans, In verse 20, that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law brings the knowledge of sin. The everyday experiences of the nation of Israel with the law should have brought them to a place of humility before the feet of their God. They should have been pleading with him to pardon them, trusting in God's mercy and his grace. Yet it was just the opposite. Just the opposite. For most of them, they would not admit their inability to keep the law and to turn to God in faith. Instead, they just kept pursuing it on their own, with their own efforts. They were seeking to obligate God to save them. They viewed themselves as accumulating a credit balance and and based on their law keeping, God would be obligated to give them forgiveness. Verse 32, why did they not arrive? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. As though it were by works. We say the same mentality has been played out over and over again in people's lives. One amazing illustration of all this is in the life of Martin Luther, the great German reformer. James Boyce in his commentary writes the following. Let me read it to you. He says, quote, if anyone could ever achieve salvation by his own efforts, it was Martin Luther. In 1505, when he was 21 years old, Luther abandoned a promising career in law and entered the monastery of the Augustan Hermits Hermits at Erford, Germany. Became a hermit. As Luther later said, this was not to study academic theology, but to save his soul. 
He went into the monastery to save his soul. In those days, the monastic orders prescribed ways by which the seeking soul could find God. And Luther, with the determination and strength that characterized his entire life, gave himself rigorously to the task. He fasted. He prayed. He devoted himself to menial work. Above all, he practiced penance, confessing his sins, even the most trivial, for hours on end. He would spend so much time in the confession booth that his superiors wearied of him showing up there. And they ordered him to stop coming until he had something significant to confess. Luther's piety gained him a reputation for being the most exemplary of monks. The most exemplary. Luther himself later wrote to the Duke of Saxony, quote, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by monkish works, I should have been entitled to it. Of this, all the friars who have known me can testify. If it had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortification even to death. That is, my putting off of my sin, I would have killed myself doing it. By means of the sleeplessness and the prayers and the reading and the labors. Luther's saying, I went after this thing with a gusto. Anything that needed to be done, I did it to the nth degree. Yet Luther found no peace, no peace for his soul through these exercises because he was trying to earn salvation by works of human righteousness when the righteousness we need is not human righteousness at all. It is the righteousness that comes from God. It is divine righteousness, and it can only be ours if God gives it to us. And he gives it to us through the gospel. When God opened Martin Luther's eyes to see this great truth, Luther believed and was saved. Beloved, it was not the object of Israel's pursuit that was wrong. Listen to me carefully now. It was not the object of their pursuit that was wrong. It was the way in which they pursued it. They knew they needed to be righteous before God and they were after that righteousness because they knew that without it, no one can stand before their Creator. The goal was right. It's the means by which they pursued it that was wrong. Israel was, in the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, on the broad path that leads to destruction. They were on the broad way, the broad path, leading them to destruction. They didn't need to have to choose between Moses and Christ. That was a false dichotomy. Because Moses rightly interpreted points to Christ. Jesus himself says it, John chapter 6, verse 45. The choice before Israel was simple. It was whether were they going, whether to use God's law according to God's purposes or their own. Would they use God's law for the purpose for which He intended it? Or would they use it for their own? The reality of Israel's unbelief 
is that they were pursuing the law and they didn't arrive at it. And yet those who had no interest in the righteousness at all got what Israel wanted. The reason Israel didn't receive it is because they were pursuing it as if it were something they could earn. As if they could make God their debtor. The result of it all was they failed. They failed. Verse 32 at the end, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Do you see it? They stumbled to everyone who believes. Why did the nation of Israel reject Messiah? Because they refused to see him in the law. Why does the nation of Israel continue to re- to reject their Messiah? It is because there's a veil that remains over their eyes and they continue to refuse to recognize that to which their own Bible points. They spend their whole life, their entire lives spent trying to find an acceptable level of righteousness before God and they've closed their mind to the only possibility there ever is to fulfilling the law. Which comes through faith in the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of God's chosen Messiah. Look at verse 9 and 10, chapter 10. Israel, how can you come to the righteousness for which you seek? It is if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. O Israel, as long as you seek to establish your own righteousness, as long as you seek to obligate God by your good works, by your law keeping, you will continue to stumble over the stumbling stone. With their head held high, Israel failed to notice the rock that God had put in their path. Paul supports this contention, verse 33, from the prophets. He goes back to the prophet Isaiah, and there in his prophecy, he draws out a couple of verses that support this statement. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Paul draws from Isaiah 28, verse 16, and Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14. And he does an interesting thing with them here, by the way. He, he takes the middle of verse 16 in chapter 28 and he removes it and he substitutes in a, a piece of verse 14 from chapter 8. He, he, he puts these two statements together. He meshes them together. Both of these statements are given by God to the nation of Israel in the 8th century B.C. in the face of the coming Assyrian uh, invasion upon upon the land. These are judgment passages. The interesting thing is that in Isaiah 28, verse 16, God says that He is laying down a stone in Zion. God Himself is laying down a stone, a precious stone cornerstone. And then in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, God says that He is the stone. And He calls it a stone of stumbling. So how can it be? 
How can God be the one who both lays down the stone and is the stone? For Paul, the answer to that comes by combining these two verses together. He resolves the paradox by recognizing the fact that it is Messiah is the stone sent from the Father. The Father lays down the cornerstone and He is the stone through His only begotten Son. That's why at the end of verse 33, Romans chapter 9, Paul inserts into the Isaiah quote, He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. The original text in the Old Testament doesn't have the in Him. It just says, and he who believes will not be disappointed. Paul adds in, it is in Him. It is in Messiah. It is in the stumbling stone Himself. God Himself laid down in the path of Israel. Belief in Him will deliver you from disappointment. All who oppose this stone will be broken to pieces. But the one who believes in Him will not come up short on the judgment day. Israel was determined to establish their own righteousness. Absolutely determined to establish it based on what they did and did not do. They were blinded to the reality that God has always and only made His righteousness available as a free gift that comes through faith. It's easy to criticize Israel. It's easy to be removed from this context and say they should have known and they should have. They should have believed and they should have. How could they miss it? That's where we come in. See, that's where we come in. Because some of you are doing the same thing. Some of you are doing the exact same thing. You are seeking to establish righteousness before God based on your effort. Your hard work, your attempt to live righteously before God. You have in your mind the false notion that there is some great cosmic scale. And that God places your good deeds on one side and if the good deeds outweigh the bad, that somehow God will welcome you in. Declare you're righteous. You're guilty of the exact same mistake. You're on the path the broad path of destruction. Listen to me. If anyone, if anyone could achieve righteousness before God based on self-effort, then the Jew could. He had God's law given to him in his own language, directly revealed by God to him. Paul calls it the oracles of God. He had all the divinely prescribed rituals and ceremonies. Everything he did, God had told him to do. He wasn't making it up. It wasn't his own homemade religion. It was God prescribed. He had the divine expression of morality. The Mosaic law is the expression of God's morality. 
Not some human invention. It, it, it expresses the very heart of God itself and, and that you have that. It has it today. It has God's divine promise of favor and protection. But he failed. But he failed. He fell short. He didn't achieve that for which he was pursuing after. And pursuing it with a vengeance. So if the Jew can't earn God's required righteousness, having all of those advantages, what makes you think you can? What makes you think that you can do a better job? Why do you think God will accept your efforts on the judgment day? And say, good enough. In you come. Beloved, he won't. He won't. If he wouldn't take the effort of his own chosen people, There's no way he's going to take yours. There's no way. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand the gravity of that? The scribes and the Pharisees were professional law keepers. Their whole lives were given to fulfilling the requirements of the God-given, God-ordained law. Down to the smallest level of minutia, they tied the mint and cumin, you remember? Teeny little seeds. And they would pick out one out of every ten to give to God. They were serious. Serious law keepers. Serious work righteousness people. They weren't casual about it. They weren't flippant about it. They knew the requirement was, was incredibly high. It was the righteousness of God Himself. And they deceived themselves into thinking they could get there. But they can't. And if they can't, you can't either. I beseech you. I beseech you in the name of the living God to receive righteousness in the only way possible. As a gift from God received by faith. Give up on your self-efforts. Abandon your external pursuits. Declare spiritual bankruptcy. You have no assets, only liabilities. And throw yourself upon the mercy of the living God. Be like that tax collector Luke writes about, who stood at a distance beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner.
Jesus says, that man went down to his house justified. God sent his own son into this world. Not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He came on a search and rescue mission. Will you receive the righteousness He offers to you today? Or will you stumble over the stumbling stone? Will you be crushed? I'm going to sing here in just a minute or so. As we're singing, there will be some folks who will come over here around by this lighted cross. There's nothing special about coming there. It's not a, a place in the room where the grace of God is more super abundant or something. God's just as much here and real here as there. There's no merit in going over there. It doesn't obligate God to you in any way. It is merely a place where you can go and meet some folks who, who want to talk to you or are prepared to talk to you about the state of your own soul. Open the Bible with you and show you the way of redemption. I urge you with all my heart, do not leave. Do not leave in the way you've come in. Do not harden yourself to the Word of God. Do not... Close down, walk away. Do not say to yourself, I'll consider these things another day. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to find healing for your soul. Let's pray.